welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back one and all to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute, also resident on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras and today I'm joined remotely by Dr. Joe Boot and we continue on. We are we're more than halfway through. You'll be pleased to see, pleased to know, uh, from, with this, uh, this mini-series on Aquinas. We appreciate you persevering with it, with us, through it. It is, uh, it is important, but it's not, uh, I understand, I'll be the first to admit that it's not for everyone, so thanks for sticking with us. Today, we are going to deal with Aquinas and history talking about what uh, what is history what what makes something historical how do we understand history and as christians how do we understand this uh, this factor of god's providence as he moves and directs and acts in history on his behalf and on behalf of his people that's where we're going to be going today before we get into that uh, just a couple of quick updates the Mission of God conference happening December 10th in Windsor, Ontario. That conference is half sold out by now. So we're uh, very, very pleased, looking forward to having you all with us. If you're trying to, if you're thinking about getting tickets, act now. The way that these things usually go is that there's a flurry of activity closer to the, the date. Uh, but uh, if you're if you're getting in on that, Act now to avoid disappointment, and we are looking forward to seeing you there. The only other thing that I want to mention is to mark your calendars out, uh, looking out into the spring of 2023. Uh, Joe Boot is going to be at the Right Response Ministries Conference. That's happening uh, May 5th through 7th in Waco, Texas. Joe will be there, James White, Joel Webin of Right Response Ministries, several other uh, friends of ours uh, will be there. This will be a great time, re- great gathering for like-minded, uh, reform-minded Christians. Waco, Texas, May 5th through 7th. Mark your calendars. Check out Right Response Ministries for more details. And with that... Joe, I'm going to, uh, we're going to launch into this, uh, this discussion. Excellent. Good to be so, with you again. Absolutely. Glad you can be here. Hope we can, uh, we can catch you before you have to uh, jet off again. Yes, indeed. So today we're in, we're, de- we're dealing with the subject of history, Aquinas and history. And one of the things, if you uh, if you're a reader of Aquinas, one of the things that you'll notice on a uh, on a careful read is that there actually there is no comprehensive philosophy of history uh, articulated in the work of Aquinas. So we have to uh, to to understand Aquinas's understanding of history. Uh, we have to look at how he deals with ideas like time and motion and space uh, with concepts rather than with concrete uh, things, as well as his understanding of providence, which is, yeah, we would understand that as 
God's act in history. So, Joe, maybe uh, maybe to open up, you can we can talk about do we have an accepted definition for what uh, what qualifies as history or what makes something um, historical, and uh, and how do we how do we understand that? Where do we see that or not see it in Aquinas? And uh, how would we how would we respond to uh, to that formulation? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, because actually, most of us, it's history is is one of those words which, a bit like time, if uh, if nobody asks you what it means, you know what it is. Yeah, exactly. And as soon as somebody asks you uh, what it is or asks you to define it, um, it becomes you know elusive. And um, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, that um, we recognize that some of the issues that we're dealing with in the last number of weeks are quite abstract and um, mm-hmm. don't necessarily immediately appeal to everybody. But it, uh, And we are grateful for our listeners persevering with us in this little mini-series in the run-up to um, uh, Christmas. But um, the, uh, the reality is, is that uh, there are important, very practical, very down-to-earth um, lessons to be learned from this discussion, as we've said in previous weeks, that the uh, the, the the long-standing influence of Greek philosophical influences that that are found in Thomas Aquinas and come down to the Western Church and then through the Reformation um, in a kind of reform scholasticism, um, even on this issue of providence um, and history, and whether you have a deterministic uh, view of history or not, um, a deterministic view of God's relationship to man is all impacted actually by the thought of uh, the angelic doctor, as he is known in the Roman Catholic Church, um, and his, as we've said in previous weeks, his subservience in his thinking to the philosopher, as he says repeatedly in the Summa, to to um, to Aristotle. That's right. And uh, the question of, 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 of time, of history, of providence, um, and of the idea of choice in, uh, for human beings is no different, actually, uh, to these other themes that we've dealt with in the profound and deep influence of Aristotle uh, on Aquinas, and therefore how we uh, will view um, history, how we view providence, how we view human choice. And then the very real practical consequences of that for Christian doctrine, uh, even for things like prayer, uh, and um, not, not just how we think about God, but how we specifically think of our relationship to God and the purpose and the value of prayer and those kinds of very practical questions mm-hmm. um, as we think about what impact we might have on history as believers uh, is impacted by this. So we encourage our listeners to stick with us and hang, hang tough, hang tight, as it were, uh, while we um, uh, while we get through this. Um, it is a it is a, uh, an interesting question to how we define what is historical. I mean, we're both here today and we're sat at our microphones um, and we're recording another week of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, which is one of our, I think, favorite times of the week in our uh, the routine of our lives at the Ezra Institute and um, in what we uh, are about on on a, on a weekly basis. Um, 
but nonetheless, the things that I have done today, um, the, my my stroll, my my breakfast, um, my uh, perhaps even um, most of my um, administration today, and and packing for a, a trip to Los Angeles and so on. Um, these are not going to make it into anybody's history book. Um, they're not really history. Um, history is not simply uh, what has happened, um, uh, you know, events that have passed. I mean, of course, history uh, wouldn't be history if it didn't deal with events that have passed. But what makes them historical, what makes any given event truly historical and has to have significance historically is the formative factor in human culture. What we call historical events are those that have seemed to have played a significant role in shaping or forming a human cultural life. So we think of, for example, the history of the Second World War or the or the history of the uh, the midterm elections, for example, uh, that have just happened in the United States. Mm. And um, I gather they're counting on an abacus down there in Arizona. Uh, <laughs> right. At least that's what you suggested before the show, Ryan, and I'm happy to steal that line. Those kind of moments, like okay, midterms or elections or periods of conflict or um, historical figures we might look to are from... Uh, the past, prime ministers and presidents and so on, then we tend to talk about history. Again, not with everything that they did, not with everything that given individuals were involved with, but those things which were formative, we think, in shaping human cultural life. And so history is about uh, the historical or cultural aspect of life is about formative power. It's about those things which those events and those persons which are giving shape to history in a way that is noteworthy, that it's that is transformative, that is formative uh, in our lives. And so when we talk about um, history, we're talking about human activity and human formative act- activity in, in the context of, uh, of culture and bringing about um, various kinds of change or progress or regression uh, even. Um, in human society. That's really what we mean. So you have to kind of dig down a little bit with that word history. Somebody says it, yeah, I know what you mean, history. But then when you're asked to define it, it takes a little bit of, uh, define it, it takes a little bit of thought. No, absolutely. So having cleared that, that specific, or that, to those detailed account of some of the, some of the challenges of defining or uh, appreciating or explaining history, what, uh, what do we make of Aquinas and how he viewed uh, history, the historical process, uh, the process of change? Mm-hmm. Where would we go? We've already said that he doesn't have a, you know, there's no Aquinas on history um, text. Mm. So where, where do we go to, uh, to find his, uh, his thought on this? Yeah. Well, of course, discussions um, about the, the 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 peculiar nature and character of history and progress and so on; uh, those kinds of reflections tended to come a bit later in the Western tradition uh, mm-hmm. of talking about a concrete or specific philosophy of history. 
And so I know that you'd appreciate, Ryan, that we, we can't sort of point the finger at Aquinas and say, where was your philosophy of history? He would have sort Correct. of seen it as implicit in what he was saying. And, and uh, he would have had a view of, of history that sees all things coming from God and all things returning to God, reaching their uh, intended goal. Um, reaching their perfection. And, and part of that is because there was an uncritical carrying over of uh, the Greek philosophical view uh, of history of things sort of emanating from God in Aristotle and returning to him to reach their goal, to reach their perfection. And so Aquinas sort of tries to Christianize that and give it a kind of an um, uh, an eschatological slant so that uh, uh, creation itself is being brought by grace through Jesus Christ and and His work um, to uh, to perfection, to its goal, to its um, to its final uh, point of conclusion. So we can say that sort of basically, um, although it's shot through with um, all kinds of Aristotelian assumptions um, mm-hmm. and language, you know, Aquinas had an essentially orthodox view that history, you know begins with creation, although there is a certain amount of ambivalence there, we must admit, about creation itself, whether um, are the are form and matter um, uh, as original substances actually created or uncreated. Scholars differ, to be honest, on whether the raw materials that God is working with are actually created or uncreated, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, and um, say that, you know, Aquinas basically believes in a creation of sorts, although I think we've dealt in previous episodes with uh, the fact that um, there is a bit of a, an, an ontic, by, the, by that we mean ontological problem of a proper and full distinction between creator and creature in, in Aquinas. Um, That's right. But there is this essential idea that uh, uh, human beings... Um, by by grace and through the work of Christ are being brought to their perfection and a final goal. So is it, there's a kind of um, uh, eschatology there that is at least partially biblical. But f- from the uh, from the from the point of view of, of truly trying to understand what uh, um, Aquinas thinks about um, the cosmos and it's reaching its goal, reaching its intended end and the part human beings play in that. You really have to, to look at and think about um, his idea of God again, uh, yes. which is somewhat problematic uh, because as we've said in previous episodes, because of the influence of Aristotle, God is pure form or pure law, we might say. Um, uh, you could even say that, you know, because he's, there's no potentiality in him, God is pure will. And so, um, the, the impression you get, the, the atmosphere you get in Aristotle, in, um, Aquinas is that, um, God has a, uh, and in fact, this is really Aquinas's teaching is that God has a rational plan. Uh, an exhaustively rational plan for created reality because um, that rational plan is the forms or the laws which God has uh, created into things. 
which enable him to rule them. So if those who've got a really good memory and didn't doze off when we were talking about archetypes and <laughs> exemplars the other week, um, may remember that uh, the the idea in Aquinas is that the laws for all things and for everything that exists actually pre-existed eternally in God, as pu- who is pure form. And then he creates these uh Examples these archetypes into all things, which then enables him to rule them, uh, and and God rules them so that they can be aimed at Himself as their ultimate end. So this you you end up with this kind of uh, fairly deterministic um, idea of God Himself. Um, there's a there's a strange word here actually normalized basically which means that god is actually placed in that sense under law that this law which is basically in his being god and law are identified with one another the uh, god becomes essentially subject to his law because god and law are one and so god then can't act outside of his providential plan so in aquinas you've got this totally rational plan for history but it all seems to be predetermined and wrapped up in the fact that god both knows that plan and then governs reality through these laws which are for eternity part of himself Mm -hmm. which he has built into the creation itself so you can see how you seem to end up with a uh, this rational plan is a completely logical deduction from a god of pure form, and you end up yeah. with the sense of determinism. You end up with this atmosphere of that history, um, and when you start talking about the providence of God, is just a um, a, a hyper determined. Um, I I hesitate to use the word fatalistic, but it's difficult to avoid. You end up with this, which is, of course, what you had with the Greeks, this fatalistic sense because of this philosophical angle from which he's constantly writing. His natural theology seems totally dictated by this philosophical posture that he has inherited from Aristotle. And so you've got this predetermined rational plan of God in his intellect. Mm -hmm. And actually, you can see the influence of that on even the scholastic reform tradition where you Mm -hmm. have certain forms of that are highly deterministic um speak of you know god's rational plan for all of reality and almost as though there's only one will in the universe that counts and so god as the lawgiver doesn't seem to stand above law but is subject to law and so he's he's bound strangely oddly um uh, by this rational plan. He he can't operate supposedly outside of this rational plan. And that's what I mean by God being bound. So as Aristotle actually taught, he's the the immovable one yeah. um, that can't change his rational plan. And so initially, uh, before you get into sort of reading anything about what uh, Aquinas says about um, freedom or the will of human beings, This is his idea of God. That's his idea of law. And so it becomes his idea of providence and of of history. And um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't fill you with a great deal of um, joy 
and hmm. it certainly seems to lack uh, direct biblical uh, inspiration. Now, and we can talk in a minute about why it is that uh, Aquinas seems to end up here and, and what the root of the problem is but and, 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 and come back to that. But that, that's the impression you get, this deterministic um, reality. And just to, uh, just to supplement that, uh, that's, uh, that's consistent with what you'll hear uh, or what you'll read in, in Aquinas elsewhere. And it's actually it's very uh, closely related to his, uh, his idea of God. And you said you mentioned being hesitant to use the, the term deterministic, but uh, and I wonder if maybe a, a very similar uh, meaning is in Aquinas's own use of the word necessary. Mm-hmm. And the way that uh, the way that Aquinas reasons to God, to the existence of God, we've talked about his uh, his evidentialist or rational streak in the past, but he effectively reasons syllogistically to say that, well, if if everything or if there is nothing eternal or nothing is necessary, then there was a time at which nothing existed. Er, some things do exist. Therefore, clearly, there must be something that has always existed, mm-hmm. and other other things, other temporal things, derive their existence from that thing. Yeah. So it's, I mean, syllogistically, like it's it's watertight. The math works. But uh, as you say, there's a this is this is not the character of God that uh, that we see revealed in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Joe, you mentioned something else there. That uh, the early reformers carried on with uh, with this broad Thomistic conception of uh, of God as a, a first cause, an unmoved mover. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where and how uh, did the uh, did the reform tradition break from that, and what uh, what was the cause of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a very good uh, that's a very good question. I think. Um, well, you don't. Uh, when you look at the preeminent theologian of the Reformation, uh, John Calvin, mm. his focus is, of course, the sovereignty of God um, over all things, and he did have things to say about uh, about predestination, but and he talked about it as a web from which the mind was unable to extricate itself. Um, but uh, Calvin was not um, a, a determinist. And uh, you don't see Calvin um, opening the Institutes with causal arguments uh, because his concern or Aristotelian arguments, because his concern is to be biblical. And so he opens with an understanding of man's knowledge um, being directly related to his relationship to God, his covenantal relationship to God. And so I think fundamentally, and, and in a certain sense, Maybe this is the, the the place to to tackle it. The difficulty that we have in Aquinas is that because he is attempting this synthesis between the Greek world of Aristotle and Christianity, he's trying to take the philosopher and bend him for use in the church. He ends up bending the Bible and Christian theology to Aristotle. Um, and the issue is that he sees the relationship between God and man in ontic terms, ontologically, not covenantally. And this mm-hmm. produces all kinds of what we can call false problems. 
And that is, and, and again, listeners right, might remember we kind of addressed this somewhat in a in a previous episode, but um, he views existence uh, being as essentially uh, a hierarchical chain, um, as as one. Now, there's an there's an upper level of being. Uh, there's transcendent being, and there's non-transcendent being, or the eternal and the temporal. But God and man seem to o- occupy the same concept of existence um, in within this hierarchy. Now, God might be a hundred thousand times greater in his knowledge and understanding and everything than you as a human being, but nonetheless, you occupy this. Uh, pyramid, if you will, of existence. Mm-hmm. Remember, the forms are eternally pre-existing in God. Man is is a uh, a soul substance. He's form. He's the he's the the, the 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 rational soul is the form of the body. And man now participates by virtue of this form in him, in the divine reason, and so. The, the difficulty is because for the Greeks, they've got an essentially pagan view of reality. They don't recognize a radical creator-creature distinction That's right. where, where law is a boundary between God and creation. Instead, law form is eternal. And so Aquinas ends up with this God, this immovable first cause that he's trying to vest with clothed with certain biblical characteristics and he ends up with a, a universe of creation uh, with with a, a sort of um, a metaphysical uh, distinction of a higher and lower in a pyramid of being and so um, he thinks that you can essentially reason analogically all the time as though when we talk about God's choices and human choices uh, or we think about um, my will and God's will, that we're somehow thinking about things that can be compared in an ontological way. Right. Um, and so he's unable to position properly the relationship between God and humanity um, that we're given in Scripture, which is a covenantal relationship. It's it's not an ontic relationship where I'm participating in the divine. It's a covenant covenantal relationship in which God has committed in his faithfulness to relate to his creatures in a particular way. And that's what we that's what we mean when we talk about the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, and so on and so forth. Is get God the covenantal relationship um, that we enjoy with God, and so he ties himself in knots, Aquinas. Sometimes speaking about history deterministically, sometimes indeterministically, because he's wrestling with these Bible passages that, on the one hand, talk about God being totally faithful, not changing. And at other times, God repenting, uh, mm-hmm. God changing his mind, God responding to people. So he finds it difficult to deal with texts, for example, about Abraham praying. What, what are you going to do with Abraham praying, inter- interceding, intervening with respect to uh, Lot, for example, in Sodom, um, where Abraham negotiates with God? These kinds of right. texts um, where there seems to be indeterminacy in this rational plan um are highly problematic now 
um, for Aquinas because he's adopted this view of of causation. You see, the Bible never speaks of God as a cause, interestingly. Uh, Christianity doesn't see God as a, a cause in a series of um, uh, events, as, as you said at the beginning of the show, you know, the, the sort of first cause or the prime mover. Right. You see, again, there in that concept, you've got, a, you've got a pyramid or a chain of being, a chain of causation. Uh, we can speak of, of, of causes within creation itself, but as soon as you start talking about trying to make, uh, to, to take that all the way back to God, as though he's part of some temporal uh, uh, chain of causes, you've now got all of these seemingly insoluble problems about freedom uh, and choice of determinacy and indeterminacy of, of of free will and predestination and so on and so forth. So it's this ontic definition of God and law and uh, of really of creation itself. It's the worldview problem. So instead of seeing man's relationship to God religiously, covenantally, um, in, in trying to deal with this of this ontic relationship, he ties himself in knots. And so in trying to overcome these sorts of problems, he's got various devices. Um, one of them is the idea of necessary cause and contingent cause. Right. So, you know, well, okay. So he's going to say, uh, yes, I recognize there's a problem here. So while human beings being rational creatures, um, they uh, clearly have a kind of choice. And God, in his providence, has ordained contingent causes, uh, whereas uh, other causes are necessary causes. And so some causes are contingent, some are necessary. And um, therefore, there's an allowance here now within providence that God has anticipated all of this. And uh, these contingent causes are ordained to accomplish his will as well it's interesting actually though when he talks about um freedom that he basically borrows um aristotle's view uh quote that is that is free which is for its own sake uh or that is free which yeah that that is free which is for its own sake um or sometimes or, or existing for its own for or existing for its own sake and when i read that actually i thought remarkable that somebody who believes scripture, uh, somebody as noteworthy as Aquinas, um, doesn't query Aristotle's idea that freedom would mean existing for one's own sake. That that is not a biblical mm -hmm. understanding of freedom. Yeah. Um, and we kind of see a similar problem when he starts to talk about. He's got he's got a difficulty now with grace as well. I mean, in what does human freedom consist? Well, Aquinas wants to root it in his rational nature, and, and man's reasonable rational nature will lead him to um, choosing that which is good and right. It's, it's, it's right reason. You're inclined by the judgment of reason. Um, so on the one hand, you, you have him using language that almost sounds like man's got this autonomous uh, freedom, almost a lawless freedom, a kind of autonomy, like Aristotle, um, and then, and yet he's just taught that God is the primary cause and governs everything. Um, and so that's when you get these devices of um, contingency 
and necessity, and you get this feeling that he's flip-flopping between determinism and indeterminism. Hmm. Um, whereas, of course, the Bible sees freedom uh, as nothing to do with necessary causes and contingent causes. Freedom hasn't got anything to do with Aristotle's view of causality at all. It means freedom means being released from sin, doesn't it? Right. Uh, released so that we can obey God's law. And you can only actually be truly free when you're delivered by Christ and you're living under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't choose whether I'm going to walk or whether I'm going to run. It doesn't mean that uh, human beings don't have any kind of choice. But the kind of choice that the Bible is interested in talking about is man's religious choice. His choice as it pertains to his covenantal relationship with God, not whether he has... Um, toast or cereal for breakfast. Um, I know I can choose to do that, but what what is? But the Bible wants to talk about what my choices in relationship to God and freedom as it stands in relationship to God. Uh, that's what Scripture is interested in. And there, basically, unless the Holy Spirit works on my heart and I'm given a new heart according to Scripture. Um, I I can't make the religious choice for God. God chooses me. And we can only respond to the Lord positively or negatively as responding beings. So um, Aquinas wasn't able to combine his teaching really about human freedom with the sovereignty of God because of this ontic problem, because mm -hmm. of this, this pyramid view. And I think because Calvin is concerned to get back to the Bible, to get back to scripture and the religious relation to God, the covenantal relationship with God, and less concerned with exegeting Aristotle, um, you, get, you get back to a much more scriptural understanding of what human freedom really means and looks like and, and what the cultural mandate is in, in history. Um, and that human freedom um, is, is real. I mean, the critics of Aquinas, his own contemporaries and, and today, in the end say that what, because of his ontology, what wins out in, uh, in Aquinas is his determinism. Hmm. And um, these sort of um, clever devices about contingency, all based on Aristotelian conceptions of causality, uh, don't accomplish what he hopes they're going to accomplish in liberating him from a completely determined um, a deterministic worldview and it's the failure to properly distinguish the being of God the uncreated being of God and his creation and his law word as the boundary for that creation and that we simply can't speak in equivalent terms about God's choices and man's choices God's will and man's will God's thoughts and our thoughts and isn't the Bible explicit about that right yeah the the difference is as I'm trying to process this uh, this pyramid of ontic being, we he Aquinas would stop short of saying with someone like Aristotle that uh, that man can become divine, but that's not because of nature. That's because man has a known start point. It's because of his his uh, the impossibility of man being eternal. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not it's a difference of degree, not a difference of kind. Right. And, you know, from a scriptural point of view, God is not a cause um, of something in cosmic nature. We can speak of ourselves in these sort of ca causal terms to some degree. Um, but 
it's this problem when the work of God and human beings are are being compared. And I think what we would want to stress is we don't propose, and I don't propose on this program, that I have a solution, <laughs> I that I have a philosophical solution um, all worked out uh, for the uh, efficacy of prayer. Sure. Uh, and the, mm. um, uh, the fact that the, the reality is we see God responding and interacting with his creatures, you see, and, the, and, and there's no solution in the so-called open theism, the, the, uh, the sort of um, uh, open theistic debate, uh, which sees God as not knowing or uh, being confused about or, or, or constantly having to uh, navigate his way like a human being through um, problems that he he uh, didn't foresee. You see, they're just on the horns of the same dilemma, but on the other end of the of the pendulum. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're seeing God still in these same terms as though if you ascribe freedom to man you must subtract sovereignty from the column of god yeah that if we've got it in two columns uh both can't be ascribed because we're somehow speaking of them in this in the same way and in the same sense and uh, that seems to be the the root of the problem is that we're unwilling to so often we're just unwilling because of this inheritance of greek philosophy largely to accept our creaturehood that here we are dealing with the reality of mystery. And that's why mm. when King David is confronted with uh, the mystery of his life and his relationship to God and of the human affairs and of his own, the vicissitudes of his own life um, as king, he doesn't uh, start to reason in Greek terms trying to resolve a philosophical puzzle. Uh, he basically says, I've, I have not occupied myself with ting- things too wonderful for, for me. I've quieted myself like a wean child. That's right. Um, Job, in his experience of evil, of disaster in his life, um, doesn't try and solve the, the, the problem with a philosophical syllogism from causality. But he says, I I had heard of you with my ears. Now my eyes have seen you. I put my hand over my mouth and will repent in dust and ashes. Mm -hmm. In scripture, what's paramount is the religious relationship to God. And we we wrestle so often with false problematics, radical determinism, open theism, as though we've got two ends of, you know, we pick one. Mm -hmm. or try to split the difference or try, the exactly. yeah. or try to split the difference or come up with some kind of, you know, uh, scholastic fudge, um, yeah. middle knowledge, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that we think is, 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 um, yes, exactly. A, a, some sort of middle way, um, rather than accepting the creator creature distinction, we are bound to think in terms of, God's law word for creation. And we can't transcend that. And we can't get into the mind of God. You see, this is why the Greeks and it's why Aquinas wants to project law, eternalize it, 
eternalize the temporal back into the mind of God as though that gives us some kind of and some sense of security, some some ability to trust our own thinking or some kind of security within the world. If I can just make my natural ideas of God or natural ideas of law eternalized and develop a philosophical theology of God that isn't to do with God's self-revelation in Christ, but, but, but based on philosophical categories that I can reason and then project back into all eternity, then I'm going to be able to comprehend all things and uh, find my way through the meaning of history. Um, but you know, Ryan, it just can't be done, hmm. and 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 it's and there and we are not in a pyramid of being ontologically with God. My reason, my thoughts are not God's thoughts. My ways are not His ways. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't trust what the Bible says to us. It doesn't mean we can't have a clear idea of love and faithfulness and righteousness and justice, because it means in God what it means to you and I, uh, in terms of our relationship with God, I should say, it means what it means to you and I, faithfulness, trust, truthfulness, and so on, except transcending our full ability to comprehend. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it means basically when God says, I'm a faithful God, um, uh, or I don't change, it means basically what it means to us only in a manner that transcends and goes beyond our ability to fully comprehend. So, Sometimes we just have to to stop trying to get back of or behind God's revelation to something more philosophical. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And resting in um, God's self revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can say God is sovereign. He watches over all the affairs of men in His providence. And God is totally faithful. And God hears my prayer. And he answers my prayers. And he allows me, as a creature, to have a formative impact upon history. Right. And actually to shape history uh, in faithfulness to him in terms of the kingdom of God. Knowing that all the time I'm dependent upon him, that I have not chosen him, but he has chosen me and appointed that I should go and bear fruit. So the maintenance of the creator-creature distinction and not trying to get behind God's revelation to some deeper philosophical conceptions of God and rather resting in the biblical world and life view is, I think, where this has to land as we think about history to avoid these false problematics that uh, Aquinas seems to tie himself in knots over. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great a great place to conclude, Joe. And uh, as we said at the beginning, I I hope I hope that our listeners are noticing how immediately practical this is, uh, how much this has to do with our understanding of the doctrine of God, uh, and as you say, in how do how do we respond to God? You know, in uh, in covenant faithfulness by resting and trusting in His providence rather than trying to you know get up in the uh, in the control room or get behind the curtain yeah we're dealing with the the living god i mean this is how god is described isn't it wonderful the way god is describing mean, when you contrast the god of the philosophers with the god of the bible god says i am the god of abraham i'm the god of isaac i'm the god of jacob 
Mm. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's the God who is active and at work in history. Uh, he's he's the God who's in relationship to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the he's our Father. Abba Father. He's not the first cause in some right. cosmic chain of being or the unmoved mover, some philosophical block of ice. Um, he's the living God who relates to us as a father to his children. And we can approximate uh, what that means. Um, we have an idea of what that means because we see what faithfulness, father, children looks like in his creation. And, uh, that's this idea knowledge that the Bible gives to us as it opens itself out to us, trying to build this, this philosophical theology of God that would give us a view of, um, the, to try and paint a picture of the meaning of history in very abstract terms of things coming from and somehow just returning to God in terms of some principle of perfection. Um, no, what we encounter in Scripture is a created world that's created good in religious relationship to God that falls into sin and ruin because of disobedience and rebellion. And then a loving God who enters history, uh, who who speaks, of course, into history, who doesn't leave men with only their human understanding with reason, but who, who, who verbally communicates with them, who speaks to them, his word, who covenants with them and who ultimately sends them the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, and by his death, his resurrection, his ascension, uh, he takes man, a human being who is fully God and fully man, but he takes human flesh and he, and, and he sends to the very right hand of God so that today, a man, a human being, is ruling and reigning. God the Son, fully man, fully God, ruling and reigning. And we are in him, in Christ, mm -hmm. as prophets, priests, and kings, as he reconciles. Not he doesn't not not that everything is some in some abstract way reaching its internal intellect, sort of returning to perfection of its original goal. No, but all things are being reconciled to God. That is brought into subjection and obedience to God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get the privilege of being movers and shakers within history right? Um, because we participate um, in that reconciling work. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation with the living God who is operative uh, within history. And the warmth of that, the comfort of that, and the knowledge of God's providence for us in our lives, in the midst of all of that, and his governance of all of that as the creator, the triune God who called all things into being and governs them in his grace and providence. Um, that's a very different vision than the cold and abstract God of the philosophers. Yeah. I like, I like that one better that to, that you've just described. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's what we see in scripture. Yeah. Joe, thanks for taking us through that uh, discussion. I hope that uh, this has been of, of benefit to all those who listen. And as we close, I just want to remind our listeners, unironically, that <laughs> from him and through him and to him are all things. And that's Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. 
Joe, it's been good to uh, good to be with you, and we'll look forward to uh, to next week's episode. 